Hey there, and welcome to Filmography in Focus, where we do deep dives into the filmographies of directors, franchises, and genres to bring into focus the motifs, techniques, and themes used throughout so that we can fall in love with these films all over again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Filmography in Focus. This month, we're looking at the works of director David Fincher. Specifically, we're looking at nine of his feature films. Seven, The Game, Fight Club, Panic Room, Zodiac, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Social Network, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and Gone Girl. The full list of films can be found on my letterboxed link in the show notes. We won't be talking too much about his television series House of Cards or Mindhunters this episode, though we will touch touch briefly upon his select music videos from his career. I also drew from the body of work of video essays out there, which will be credited at the end of the episode and will also be linked to in the show notes and on Letterboxd. This discussion will include spoilers, and it's not meant to be a critique or review of these films, more so an observation of the motifs and techniques used and a meditation on the themes that recur across his works. All right, let's get into it. 2010 was a weird year for me. I had graduated high school in Florida and went off to college in Philadelphia, 800 miles away. Not only was I living on my own for the first time, I was meeting new people, coming into contact with new ideas, and seeing movies that were very different from the family-friendly fare I had been used to seeing with my parents for a long time. On one end of the spectrum, every college dorm seemed to have a poster of Fight Club, with the rules of Fight Club being quoted at me and it being simultaneously the most macho thing ever, as well as the worst form of toxic masculinity, not to mention the calls of being anti-consumerist by every philosophy major I met. Frankly, it was kind of intimidating to watch with all of that behind it, and I never got around to it, even if alongside Darth Vader being Luke's father, Sorlin Green being made of humans, and Bruce Willis actually being dead all the whole time in The Sixth Sense, Tyler Durden not being a real person was spoiled for me years ago. On the other end of the spectrum of new movies, I remember catching a screening of The Social Network at the local movie theater, which definitely kicked into gear a wave of wannabe Zuckerbergs at my school both from the business majors as well as the engineering school, who were convinced they were going to make the next Facebook. This all came long before I cared about who directed which films, or even thought about films in a really critical way in any way whatsoever. So when I was putting together the short list of directors and films I wanted to cover on this podcast, I was pleasantly surprised when it turned out that these two films had been directed by the same person, David Fincher. Between that and the comparisons between him and last month's director, Bong Joon-ho, specifically between their film Zodiac and Memories of Murder, it naturally made sense that I dig into somebody who has been called the greatest living American director today. David Fincher was born in 1962 in Colorado. The son of a screenwriter, author, and a mental health nurse, um, his mom was the mental health nurse, uh, he moved to California when he was young and grew up around movies. Apparently, George Lucas lived only two doors down, and he watched The Godfather and American Graffiti being filmed not far from where he lived. This led to, as early as an age of eight, him knowing that he wanted to make movies after watching a documentary about the making of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He would take his father's Super 8 camera and make home films. He moved to Oregon with his family as a teenager, and there he did lighting and set design for school plays, as well as afterwards working as a projectionist at a local theater. After graduating from high school, he moved back to California and worked as a production assistant for director John Cordy. Eventually, he got a job at the age of 19 as a visual effects producer and assistant cameraman for Industrial Light and Magic, 
working on the films like Return of the Jedi and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. In 1984, he got a job actually directing a commercial for the American Cancer Society that featured an embryo smoking a cigarette. And this would, I would say, be his breakout work that caught his attention of Hollywood. This led to a slew of other commercial contracts for Nike, Levi's, Coke, Sony, Converse, Pepsi, among others. He also he also formed a production company, Propaganda Films, that was the training grounds for other directors such as Michael Bay, Gore Verbinski, Zack Snyder, and Spike Jones. In addition to his commercial work, he also did many iconic music videos. These include Paula Abdul's Straight Up, Jordan Michael's Freedom, Michael Jackson's Who Is It, and Madonna's Vogue and Express Yourself. This work in music videos continues today, uh, with his most recent one being Justin Timberlake's Susan Tai in 2013. In 1990, Fincher was tapped to direct the third entry in the Aliens franchise, and frankly, it didn't go so well. Largely due to studio interference, it's really not a great example of Fincher's style, and he's actually publicly disowned the film since then. However, it was an important stepping stone in forming Fincher's approach to films by helping instill a largely perfectionistic attitude on his films that adheres to the vision he has that he's going to fight for. This is reflected in his 1995 film, Seven, starring Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, where he pushed back against the studio who wanted a less depressing ending, and that led to the famous what's in the box scene that we have today. From there, he followed it up in 1997 with The Game, starring Michael Douglas, and then the aforementioned Fight Club in 1999, starring Brad Pitt again and Edward Norton. In 2002, he had Panic Room, starring Jodie Foster and a young Kristen Stewart. Then after a five-year hiatus, he returned with the 2000 film Zodiac, a retelling of the Zodiac murders starring an absolutely ridiculous cast in hindsight. It's like Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo, Robert Downey Jr., just a few of the members of this ridiculous cast. In 2008, this was followed up with A Curious Case of Benjamin Button, based on the F. Scott Fitzgerald short story, once again starring Brad Pitt alongside Kate Blanchett. In 2010, we have The Social Network, as I mentioned earlier, with Jesse Eisenberg and Andrew Garfield, featuring a screenplay by Aaron Sorkin. In 2011, he worked on the Swedish, uh, an adaptation of the Swedish novel by Stieg Larsson, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, featuring Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara. From here, Fincher actually began dipping his toes into television, and he acted as executive producer of the hit Netflix show House of Cards in 2013 and directed the first two episodes. Between this and his next Netflix series in 2017, Mindhunters, he also put out the 2014 film Gone Girl, based on the novel by Gillian Flynn, starring Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. So, now that we've gone over his body of work and career up to date, what are the techniques that we see reoccur throughout his films? First off, and you may not consider this a technique, but Finch has a pretty standard crew with whom he works with. Most obviously, Brad Pitt has appeared in three of his films as the leading man, and Rooney Mara and um, Jared Leto have appeared in other in, in two of his films each. Um, however, behind the camera, you are more likely to see the same set of film of crew members. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of Nine Inch Nails or Howard Shore are most likely the composers of his score. Darius Conzi or Jen Cronen, Jeff Cronenworth are, is his cinematographer. Ren Kleist has been his sound designer forever. Angus Wall is always his editor. Donald Graham Burt is his production designer. Bob Wagner is his assistant director. And Larry Mayfield is his casting director. I bring up these names because Fincher is known to have a very exacting and demanding style of directing, and so having a crew who is used to working with him is crucial. 
it's been said that for his films, you know, most directors will film maybe 10 hours of footage that will eventually get edited down to one hour of take, you know, taking a couple takes here and there. Fincher, for uh, one hour of tape in Gone Girl, filmed 250 hours. So for a two-hour film, that's over 500 hours of total film that eventually got edited down to the two hours of film that we saw. Some sequences will require dozens and dozens of take, with one scene from the social network taking over 99 takes. I'm definitely willing to bet that some of this stems from his experiences with the interfering studio on Aliens 3, um, leading to a film he was not super proud of. According to him and some of his actors, this technique allows him to try out different takes, you know, let the actor act as much as they can and get past the point of being quote-unquote earnest with the with their acting so that it can be completely natural take without overacting or trying too hard. And so that the actors can leave at the end of the day, you know, feeling like they left it all on the table and so they can find the exact right take that they need to use. One other thing that helps with this multiple take philosophy is actually Fincher is very, very uh, willing to use CG special effects. Now, Benjamin Button obviously made the most use of this, using motion capture on Brad Pitt to capture the, the motion capture for the old and de-aged versions of himself. But you know, most of his films are not the normal big action spectacle you'd expect to see CG used in, such as Avengers Endgame. Uh, you know, but you know. Most of the time, the CG he uses is maybe adding digital backgrounds or weather effects or maybe adding blood in the scene. Um, all of these allow Fincher to have a very tight control on a scene without too many additional factors. You know, for example, add in the snow in the scene digitally so that you don't need to reset a snow machine or wait for actual soda suit to fall down. You can just film whenever you want and just add in snow in post-production. You know, you can add in digital blood so you don't need to reset the squibs and clean off the actors with between each take. You can just keep on doing it over and over again and just add the blood in post. You know, create a whiteboard with clues on suspects in the background that can be adjusted manually so there's less risk of an eagle-eyed audience member spotting a detailed mistake made by the production crew. You know, even the Winklevoss twins in Social Networks were actually created by mapping Army Hammer's face onto Joss Pence's body. So you have two bodies who have a similar build, but you have the same face, so they're actually identical twins. A lesser director would have just used, you know, two twins who used exact look for twins who look exactly the same, or just make them be like, oh yeah, they're twins technically, they're just fraternal twins, they're not identical. In fact, you know, even though Benjamin Button was shot on all digital, you know, one fun fact is they added the celluloid film artifacts on flashback sequences in order to create a certain look of the film. And this is one of the actual early cases of films being shot on digital, uh, doing this kind of recreation of the film aesthetic. You know, CG also allows Fincher to create camera shots he normally wouldn't use otherwise. Uh, most of his shots are actually on dollies or cranes or tripods, and they most often are wide shots, you know, uh, with the occasional close-up for emphasis, uh, you know, on a specific detail. But, um, you know, the wide shot, you know, often having, not, often you will have the back and forth between characters, but you also have shots that just have both characters in frame just talking to each other. Um, CG also allows them to create shots that no human operator or physical camera could capture. Um, you can zoom through walls and floors or fly through keyholes or coffee pot handles to show the relative positioning of objects of importance to the character, you know, because those little details matter to him. Um, you know, beyond CG, you know, the camera work on his films will all move with purpose and precision. You know, obviously, this is pretty hard to illustrate in an audio medium as a podcast, but next time you're watching a Fincher film, pay attention to the way his camera shots 
pan, tilt, or track with the characters. You know, if a character is walking across the house, the camera will follow them smoothly, eerily on a track. And then once they stop, rather than the camera continuing forward with forward momentum or pan circling around them cinematically, it will stop completely still as soon as they, on the exact frame that they will stop and then move once again once the character moves. If a character stands up and sits down, the character will pan up and then sift down with them. You know, some of the videos I'll link, video essays I'll link in the show notes will have examples for this. Again, this meticulous eye to detail of camera work helps explain his multiple takes, you know, as well as the need for a crew and cast that meets his standard of work. This attention to detail extends back to his music video days. You know, most music videos, you know, if you look at them, they'll cut every two seconds to keep the audience's attention and show off whatever stage productions or costumes that they have. But many of Fincher's videos have long cuts. You know, they don't cut in the middle of a phrase um, or or verse. The they'll the camera movements and cuts will be timed to match the music he's working with. Similarly, in his feature films, Fincher is quite deliberate with his transitions. You know. Um, you know, they'll, he'll cut between different angles uh, to show characters talking to each other and kind of their relation to each other. But other times when it's appropriate, and he doesn't do this all the time, but when he does, it hits because he'll fade out over time at specific key points, not from lack of creativity, but in order to part, impart a certain sense of unresolved feeling as the scene ends and as time passes on for the characters. Something else from Fincher's work as a music video director that carried over to his feature films, his use of color or rather his lack thereof. Uh, in his music videos, most notably Madonna's Vogue, Iggy Pop's Home, Nine Inch Nails is Only, Rolling Stone's Love is Strong, Sting's Englishman in New York, Paul Abdul's Straight Up, and Justin Timberlake's Susan Tai, he opts for a monochromatic black and white look. Uh, in his films, the color palette does have color, but he chooses to, it seems to be very muted and not very saturated, um, and his characters are often portrayed in darkness and shadow, um, even when it's supposed to be a pretty sunny day out. Uh, and in extreme examples, his characters will complete, appear in complete silhouette. And when he does opt for color, he chooses white, yellow or blue as his opposing color, colors of choice. Again, this is hard to show this visual technique in an audio form, so I'll link examples of this in the show notes. But, for example, in Benjamin Button, he uses blue hues to have blue hues to represent the present-day scene uh, in the hospital, while the past is often a wash in yellow. In Zodiac, the murders of the serial killer are set in scenes with lots of yellow, while the quest for tooth is set in blue, and then at the end of the film, when the prime suspect is found, uh, he appears with a blue shirt and yellow vest. So these, again, his attention to detail, especially with his colors, is profound. In addition to his eye for color, Fincher, as a little bit before, developed an ear for sound within his films. You know, working with his longtime sound team, the sound design for his films strives for a certain level of realism beyond what you expect from most films. You know, instead of using the generic breaking celery in order to recreate the sound of getting punched in Fight Club, they went above and beyond by placing walnuts inside chicken breasts and then recording the sound of that getting beat up on to- layered on top of the traditional celery foley. Furthermore, specific sound effects are used to draw attention to certain cues within the scene. For example, in the scene where the narrator's uh, attempts to escape his insomnia through um, support networks um, gets interrupted by Marla, you know, the sound of her glider clicking and the whoosh of the fire fills the consciousness and is very loud and distracting from the, what's, what's going on around him. In social network, scenes in bars and clubs have the background music turned way up so you can barely hear the dialogue of the character. Normally in other films, the background music would be very low so you could you know, just hear the characters without too much effort. 
Here, Finsbury forces you to pay closer attention to them, um, making you pay more attention to the dialogue, which is very important to him, um, while also adding realism to the scene. And score-wise, you know, Finster goes between using songs for ironic effect. You know, he has a lighthearted tune played during a torture or murder scene uh, in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Zodiac to juxtapose the action on screen. Or, you know, he'll use the songs to reinforce the themes of his films, such as using Where's My Mind at the end of Fight Club once the narrator overcomes his mental demon of Tyler Durden. So, given all of these techniques, what are other hallmarks of a Fincher film, motif-wise? Fincher films are all about details, not only in how they're constructed, as we've gone over in multiple different angles, but also about the plot details. Many of his films revolve around some sort of mystery that needs to be solved. The murders, or supposed murders, in Seven, Zodiac, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, Tattoo, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and Gone Girl, or a larger truth that needs to be unveiled. What is and isn't part of the game? Who is Tyler Durden in Fight Club? What really happened between Mark and Eduardo in the social network? And who was Benjamin Button? His protagonists are journalists and detectives, you know, people who are obsessed with details, going up against, you know, obsessive serial killers and masterminds. The most thrilling plot points aren't physical combat or conflict, but when a new piece of information is revealed, both to the audience and to the characters in the stories. The revelation of these is of what this discovery means is often left unsaid verbally, as Fincher often trusts his audience to make the same connections his characters are. He treats his audience as if they are intelligent and able to understand what's going on with a lot of, without a lot of hand-holding. This focus on detail and information is reinforced like one in the techniques we talked about earlier, the detail of how the camera moves and the close-ups on specific images after successes wide shots tells us that this, this specific thing I'm zooming in on, this is important. It lets us get inside the heads of those individuals and what matters to them so that we can empathize and relate to them. And that's not easy. Like Fincher, his characters are obsessives who themselves chase other get chase after other obsessives. And obsession can be lonely and even ostracizing. And yet, Finch is able to get us to root for and feel what they must be feeling, even and perhaps especially when his characters aren't sure themselves of what is going on. We learn about murders in real time as our detectives learn more and more clues. We slowly figure out alongside the narrator of who or what Tyler Durden is. The confusion can lead to the use of handled thoughts, showing the character's instability, overcoming a smooth, omniscient point of view that we normally have. Of course, that can be subverted too. In the game, for example, the use of close-ups that Fincher often uses to tell us this is important, we're not sure what is and isn't important, and there are close-up on things that ultimately don't really matter. But that's just way way to show the paranoia his character faces as throughout the movie, he questions what's real, what's not, what's important, what's part of the game, and what's not. And when these characters themselves are unreliable narrators, which is another motif throughout his films, and when they're not sure of what they saw, well, even if we're getting into their heads, if they truly believe and think they saw what they saw, then how can we know that they're mistaken? Fincher has said that he wants his camera to be omniscient and not influencing or acting upon his characters. And while the smooth, inhuman camera movements with such precision do allow us into the minds of his characters and allow us to sync with them, again, the whole standing up when they stand up and sitting down when they sit down, if the characters are unreliable narrators, then can the camera really be omniscient and impartial? On the flip side, while in some movies we definitely do stick with our characters and don't jump to other characters' to learn information that the first character wouldn't know, 
In others, we do take a God's eye view and jump between different timelines. You know, this is sometimes accomplished in the form of flashbacks or nonlinear storytelling. Benjamin Button, Social Network, and Fight Club are all told in the framework of flashing back, uh, you know, to the past after during some present day conversation. Um, or in Gone Girl, they flash halfway through the story to show what Amy Dunn has really been up to. This also plays in the idea of passages of time as a motif throughout his films. Obviously, this is most present in Benjamin Button, uh, but how time goes on and affects his characters is a common motif that Fitcher touches upon. The protagonists in Zodiac who stay obsessed with the killer, even as the rest of San Francisco moves on, or the detectives in Seven trying to track down the killer before his Somerset's retirement, each day taking past. Mark Zuckerberg sees how his life has changed over the years, or you know the Duns tracking how many days have passed since Amy has been gone. All of these passages of time just help add to the idea of what it means to be obsessive and to stay focused on this task, even if the time around you has diluted and passed on. This is why he cuts and fades over time periods, so that even though for us, passages of, uh, passages of time has stayed the same, and for the characters, they're just as obsessed, for the rest of the world, time has gone on. One thing that perhaps can give us a clue uh, to this information that we may or may not always have are his title sequences. Uh, some of the these are some of the more elaborate. Some are more elaborate than others, but a lot of them feel like mini music videos, perhaps relating back to his origins as a music video director. And they often have hints or clues to the audience of what is to come or the themes to look into the film. Perhaps for a way of us to have that sense of omniscience as the camera before it all begins. And then there are other motifs that help characterize the players in his films. One of my favorites uh, is, you know, it really stood out to me. Every film had a sort of interior shot of somebody's refrigerator. Sometimes this is a form of characterization. Mark Zuckerberg has is the kind of person who has beer or Mountain Dew in his fridge. Um, in Gone Girl, Amy Dunn's the type A wife who has everything labeled in boxes in their fridge. Tyler Durden keeps human fat in his fridge to turn into soap. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes the plot points, the empty fridge in the game is a clue to Nicholas that you know the apartment he's in is fake and not actually lived in. The fridge in the house uh, that's of the first murder suspect of the first murder victim in Gluttony in Seven uh, ends up you know having a clue behind it to lead to the to John Doe. Or you know in Fight Club again, the original narrator unnamed narrator's condo has a fridge that over a trip ends up exploding. Um, yeah, that is just a. Uh, that's just an example of how fridges and how food can just be a indicator of what kind of person you are and how it drives the plot forward. There are also some things that don't appear in every film, but you know the proclivity of his characters to smoke indoors and what that says about them comes up in a couple of films. Of course, some of that may be changing attitudes since you know these films that came out when smoking was more prevalent in films, and especially when it was period appropriate to do so, such as in Zodiac. But I can't help feel that that's a choice of his on how to portray his characters and what they're like. Similarly, at least in his more recent films, the way the characters interact with cats is another clue to the personality I sometimes notice that, you know, um, and, you know, perhaps as an homage to his childhood job, Fincher also has some of his characters take on the role of projectionists in movie theaters. Not entirely sure what that is, but um, yeah, I think that, that that's pretty interesting that he that, that draws in there. I also noticed that Fincher seems to have strong feelings about cities in his films. His portrayal of them, be it San Francisco in The Game or Zodiac, New York uh, in Panic Room or, you know, in some degree um, Gone Girl, or even the unnamed city in Seven, you know, they aren't always the most appealing. In fact, it's the, through these cities that he allows them to do the dingy side of humanity and shadows that obscure characters. 
And finally, you know, Fincher some definitely does not shy away from sex in his films. He uses it in all sorts of contexts. Sometimes it's shown as actual genuine human connection between two characters. Uh, sometimes it's a weapon used by a woman to seduce a man. And other times it's a weapon used by a man to inflict violence upon a woman. But that just shows the whole spectrum of what sex can be, you know, from its best down to its very worst. And that kind of leads us to what exactly is David Fincher trying to say in his films? In the DVD commentary for Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, David Fincher is pretty explicit about what he thinks about humanity. And I quote, I think people are perverts. I've maintained that. It's the foundation of my career. Where did this mindset come from? Uh, well, you could speculate that his mother's job as a mental health nurse contributed to this idea, though I can't really say for certain that's where it comes from. But what I can say is that this pessimistic perspective of humanity is reflected in almost all of his films. If I had to sum it up in my own words, I think Fincher tackles the lingering effects of mankind's ugliness not only upon themselves, but also on others. In Seven, the brutality of the city life causes Somers, Detective Somerset to wish to retire as he feels the apathy towards his private common man growing within him. In the game, the suicide of Nicholas's father has lasting effects decades after the fact. In Fight Club, the narrative's unresolved issues and discontent with his lot in life leads to a cult-like following of Project Mayhem that externalizes his inner turmoil and manifests itself as Tyler Durden. In the panic room, the greed of Junior and Raul, as well as the infidelity of the ex-husband, causes pain for Meg and Sarah. Zodiac clearly shows the ripple effects that the titular serial killer has not only on the community, but more specifically on the investigators and journalists who continue to be haunted by the case decades after the date take place and how it destroys their personal lives. Social Network has shown how the character of Mark Zuckerberg, who by all accounts could be considered a successful individual, at the end of the day, he's not only has hurt but driven away what one might call his best friend, but also in the context of today's views on Facebook, how his ego and hubris has led to the role of social media, positive but somewhat negative, on our lives today. Girl with a Dragon Tattoo details how the evil within the hearts of members of a family impacts those around them through serial serial murder, serial and raping, and how it drives one family away and ends up hurting another member of the family who didn't know what happened. And Gone Girl uh, is about how the sociopathy of its characters leads to a situation where a lot of hurt is just seared all around. Perhaps his least pessimistic work is Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which you know seems to be a treaty on how to make the most of life. However, when you think about it, the eponymous character is not only able to do so, is only able to live life that way because he lives his life in reverse and he has this innocence and naivete believing that he was never going to live for that long and now he can embrace life fully. By living his life in reverse, which is in itself a perversion of nature's law, he's able to live life happily. So perhaps it's by only being a little perverse and embracing that side of yourself that you can grow to accept your lot in the world. As opposed to Bong Joon-ho, who seems more concerned with the flaws of the system in which people do their best despite the system working against them and they're sometimes being forced into bad situations, Fincher believes that people themselves are inherently messed up. I mean, in a sense, you kind of have to be to be a little messed up, to be the kind of obsessive to dig over the gruesome details of rapes and murders. Um, and if nothing matters in the end, then you might as well try to find meaning in the smallest of details out there. It's a lonely path, as many of his characters ultimately are lonely individuals, and the weight and effect of that loneliness is another theme that Fincher hits upon. This obsession with mankind's ugliness, ma ugliness manifests in two ways in his films. 
One are self-destructive men. Detective Mills in Seven, learning what's in the box. Nicholas Van Orton in Seven, jumping off of a roof. Tyler Durden and the members of Fight Club being in fight clubs. Robert Graysmith in Zodiac, losing his family over the over his investigation. Mikhail Blomvich in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, whose life falls apart after the libel case. And Nick Dunn in Gone Girl, who merits the case after he commits infidelity. On the other hand, there are women who fight back, back again when the going gets tough. Sarah Altman in Panic Room, Erica Albright in Social Network, Lisbeth Salander in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, Amy Dunn in Gone Girl. Heck, even if you want to go and include Alien 3, which he doesn't, you have Sigourney Weaver, who's kind of the prototypical strong woman character. Regardless of whether the character in question is strong, is self-destructive or strong, his fil- films tend to end in a couple of ways. Either the asshole in the film ends up winning, so to speak, or there's a bit of ambiguity, or both. In 7, John Doe successfully gets all seven murders that he wants, and the bad guy wins, even if Morgan Freeman's character ambiguously states that he'll be around, whether that means he'll continue on to retire or continue on detective work is left up to interpretation. The game ends in ambiguity of whether Claire and Michael will actually go on that coffee date, or and if he'll actually be able to make a real human connection after many years of not being able to do so. And, you know, even if Tyler Durden is vanquished at the end of Fight Club, Project Mayhem and the domestic terrorism it represents is a success, technically. Zodiac ends with the killer never caught, as it was in real life, and even if they have a suspect, he's never arrested. Girl the Dragon Tattoo does end with them finding Harriet and killing the serial killer, but the very last thought is one of Lisbeth being able to give her gift to Mikhail after the connection throughout the film. And Gone Girl ends with the sociopathic Amy Dunn getting what he wants in a kind of twisted way. Even for his films that end on a slightly more positive note, you know, Benjamin Button and Panic Room and even the games to some degree, at the end of the day, while these characters were able to get past the hardships that they faced, it's not as though they're really significantly better off than they were before. And so what Fincher is saying is that even in the best case scenario, you're able to live life, survive life, but more likely things don't, won't end up so well for you if you're a good person. I think this plays into Fincher's ultimate goal, which is less about how perverse humanity is and more about the nihilism and meaninglessness of it all. As we've mentioned multiple times, Fincher presents a camera that's static, wide shot, and sees all omniscient, even using CG to create shots that couldn't be captured otherwise. As if what's happening on screen was always going to happen, he's just documenting and showing it to you. The characters who come out on top of these films are those who plan ahead, meticulously, and are able to direct those around them to do what they want. John Doe, Tyler Durden, the Zodiac, getting others to play into the palm of their hands, accounting for what they are, who their opponents will attempt to do to get one upon them, and working around that. Heck, even in his TV show, House of Cards, Frank Underwood is described as Machiavellian. In Benjamin Button, he muses frequently on the idea of what fate is, what destiny is. And, you know, I think that's what Fincher is getting at, that if everything is life in life is fated or destined, and if humanity is perverse, well... He doesn't want to create an escapism from that, but he wants his audience to accept that and understand that perspective of the world and pleases it to us. As Tyler Durden says in Fight Club, you have to consider the possibility that God does not like you. He never wanted you. In all probability, he hates you. But that's not the worst that could happen. Fuck Dan Nason, man. Fuck Redemption. We're not God's unwanted. We are God's unwanted children. So be it. Frankly, this episode of Filmography and Focus really tested me, and I'm only three episodes in. 
it's not because there are too many films to watch. Uh, rather, unlike Fincher's approach to movie making, you know, to not even escape from life's hardships, but to reflect them back on screen to us in the most raw and visceral form he can, with all the excruciating detail that he can muster, that's not really how, what I go see movies for personally. And it made it rough to make my way through his films. I needed to sit down and decompress for several hours after each one. But while his films may not be my cup of tea, I can't deny that they're not well done and they clearly communicate what he's trying to get across. And that I can definitely respect from someone who has a vision. And I understand why and how he's able to make these film works that impact generations and save the way we think about the kind of people we as individuals are in this world. His next film due is a Netflix film called Mank a biographical film starring Gary Oldman about the screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz, who wrote Citizen Kane alongside Orson Welles, based on the screenplay written by his father. I'm certain I'll be watching that, uh, even if it won't be the most enjoyable film, but I'll be bracing myself for that post-movie slump, looking out for Fritz Sots, and marveling at the detail and meticulousness that is the signature style of the work of David Fincher. Thanks for listening to this episode of Filmography in Focus on David Fincher. Hopefully, even without the visual element in describing this audiovisual medium, I'm able to illustrate my points clearly enough. If you want to explore more content out there about him, there is an extensive list of video essays and interviews I watched and read in preparation for this, for this podcast. A full list of links can be found in the show notes, but credit goes to the following YouTubers. Matter of Film, Art of the Title, Critical, The Discarded Image, Every Frame of Painting, Film Radar, Flick Fanatics, Indie Hustle, Indie Film Hustle, Captain Christian, The Lookout, Mix Cinema, Mr. Nerdista, Nerd Rider One, Patrick H. Williams, Slate, The Seventh Art, Studio Binder, Trash Theory, and Tyler Mowry. Thank you for your work. For the May 2020 episode of Filmography in Focus, after the dark and depressing films of David Fincher, let's write things up. May is traditionally the month when the summer box office season starts, and even if there aren't a lot of blockbusters in theaters right now, let's go ahead and take a look back at the films of the director who is considered to be the one who helped push blockbusters to the mainstream, Steven Spielberg. Obviously, he's had many, many decades of movies under his name at this point, so we'll focus on just one portion of his career and get to his other films at a later point in time. Uh, for, these fil- for this first episode, we'll be looking at his films from the beginning of his career through the end of the 80s, so everything before 1990. These will be his short film Amblin, and his feature films Sorgullion Express, Joss, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1941, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The College Purple, Empire of the Sun, Always, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. A link to the loader box list with all these films can be found in the show notes. If you have any thoughts on Spielberg's early work or any reactions to David Fincher's work and my analysis or feedback or suggestions for this podcast in general, please shoot an email over to filmographyandfocuspodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at filmonfocuscast. Your comments might make it into the show. Our intro and outro music is provided by Kevin MacLeod. You can find his stuff at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. And until next time, remember, the show goes on. Bye, guys. Mm-hmm.